listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of Record messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. In the fall of 1949, the United Steelworkers threatened to strike over the issue of whether employees should bear the entire cost of employee benefits such as pensions and health insurance, or whether employees should contribute to such costs. Two recent federal court rulings had allowed that under the Wagner Act, Workers could bargain for retirement and health benefits, with employer after Truman persuaded the union three times to delay strike actions. The steel workers ran out of patience, and on October 1st, a half million employees walked off the job. Steel companies and their subsidiaries were affected from New Jersey to the iron ore mines of Minnesota's Masabi Range. Industry executives balked at the notion of shouldering all the cost of the disputed benefits, partly out of contempt for what management saw as the lingering New Deal's ethos of something for nothing. The still workers, led by CIO President Philip Murray, countered that employers taking just such responsibility for workers' health and retirement needs would help safeguard the democratic way of life. It was pointed out that the still industry had long provided comprehensive, non-contributory benefits of the sort desired by the union to its own top executives. It was suggested that industry contributes 10 cents per hour per worker toward benefits which the still employers agreed to, with the stipulation that employees pay an additional amount from their weekly salary. The union felt that the contribution was a part of the wages, one that went towards the worker's needs but not into his pocket. The union also contended that such coverage should be automatic, thus ensuring that all workers were covered. Truman was in a difficult spot, as it was his board who had suggested the 10-cent contribution. The union wanted it acted on, but industry was insistent on the employee contribution and said that both had agreed that the board's decision was not binding. His options concerning Taft-Hartley would be to invoke the Selective Service Act of 1948, which allowed for the government to compel the production of coal for use by the armed services, use the inherent powers of the presidency to act on in the public interest as defined in the 1895 Supreme Court ruling of Debs, or attempt to win emergency legislation in Congress None were politically appealing. Just 11 days into the steel strike, its impact was already being felt nationwide. Railroads had less to transport, and steel-reliant businesses were forced to step down production and even lay off workers. A few days later, Commerce Secretary Sawyer stoked further anxiety by warning that if the stoppage in steel and coal continued, until November 1st, as many as 2 million American workers would be unemployed 
were it to go as far as December 1st, the number would rise to 5 million. Philip Murray, speaking before enthusiastic CIO rallies and by radio, vowed no retreat, praising Truman's board's 10 cent recommendation and holding up as ridiculous the notion that still companies couldn't afford the benefits arrangements. The break in the standoff on October 31st, when Bethlehem Steel Corporation, the nation's second largest steelmaker, agreed to provide pensions that would be non-contributory for individual employees. At age 65, with 25 years of employment with the company, they would receive $100 per month or more. Those with few hours would receive less. The agreement included life insurance and a comprehensive Blue Cross health plan with the employee and his family covered to be paid 50-50 by contributions of 2.5 cents an hour from Bethlehem and the same from each of the firm's 77,000 employees. This was copied not just by other steelmakers, but served as a model for employer-based pension and health benefits in hundreds of U.S. companies. This success was not repeated often as the restrictions imposed by Taft-Hartley. In fact, the detrimental effects of the law would prove both powerful and enduring. The CIO had a named Operation Dixie. In late 1940, they attempted to unionize the textile mills of the South. This was ambitious. South had rigid folkways, a legacy of slavery, sharecropping, convict labor, and state rights had rejected labor unionization as doggedly as it defended racial segregation. The South shamelessly sold the idea that its society was unique and not easily understood by outsiders, and that it must be left to handle its own affairs. This was not the CIO's first ambitions organizing efforts. It had organized the Midwestern Industrial Belt in the 1930s along with the effort of the Communist Trade Union Unity League, better known as TUL, T-U-U-L, had helped open the doors of northern industry to blacks who in large cities such as Chicago, Detroit, and Philadelphia had subsequently became a significant voting bloc. Chiefly Democratic, this enabled a march on Washington, D.C. in 1941, led by a Philip Randolph, president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which demanded an end to racial discrimination in the defense industries, along with a threat of a massive labor demonstration that would bring 100,000 protesting black workers to the nation's capital. Roosevelt responded with an executive order banning such discrimination and created an enforcement agency, the Fair Employment Practices Commission, FEPC. The CIO launched Operation Dixie in the spring of 1946, the best time as America was buoyed by the post-war pride having overcome fascism. The nation's core values of tolerance and democracy were extolled and celebrated. Truman took up Roosevelt's civil rights ideas in 1948. He issued an executive order ending segregation in the armed forces. He also established the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, demanded a federal investigation and prosecution of multiple lynchings in Georgia, and became the first president to address a gathering of the NAACP. 
At the same time, John L. Lewis, along with the NAACP, at the same time, John Lewis, along with NAACP Executive Secretary Walter White and legal advisor Thurgood Marshall, began work to address many of the long-simmering problems of black labor. Emphasizing the advantage of worker solidarity across racial lines and counseling blacks not to serve as scabs. Still, this was also the era of the Dixiecrat Rebellion, the walkout led by white supremacist Senator Storm Thurmond of South Carolina from the 1948 Democratic National Convention in protest over the party civil rights plank, and it was a very real question whether the genial post-war spirit of reconciliation and freedom trains would extend to the sleepy textile mill village of Appalachia. Much of the South retained the region's entrenched system of caste as well as its reactionary think-alike institutions of press, pulpit, business, and police. Here, labor advocates would not merely encounter resistance of a single manufacturer or town, but animosity on a pervasive regional scale, a uniform reaction to what was perceived literally as an invasion of labor agitators. To puzzled white Southerners, the likelihood that the CIO effort was driven by some powerful ideology, probably communist, served as the only possible explanation for why outsiders would be so foolish as to defy local customs. It certainly did not help that the labor movement itself in the post-war years was not above occasional red-baiting. George Meany of the AFL called the CIO leadership the devoted followers of Moscow and characterized it generally as an organization that was openly followed the communist line and is following that line today. The CIO welcomed communists as members in the late 1930s. John Lewis had said, Do not turn my organizers and CIO members upside down and shake them to see what kind of literature falls out of their pockets. The CIO now bent over backwards to reassure the public that communists would not be active within the ranks they went so far as to state that no communists would hold executive jobs. Operation Dixie represented more than just an affront to local customs. It threatened the South's ability to offer the low-priced and durable labor status quo vital to attracting commercial and industrial investments. They also remembered the United Textile Workers' Strike of 1934, which had ended with Southern mill owners discharging leading union activists from their jobs and even evicting many of them and their families from company towns. Fifteen years after the failure of the big UTW walkout, Southern employers could still feel confident in the extreme economic vulnerability of local workers. These people had just came off of red clay Country farms, observed one CIO organizers, they figured these were the best jobs they had ever had. Race was another barrier, since any biracial gathering was seen as a transgression of local mores, if not the law. Churches were no refuge, as textile mills routinely sugared local churches with donations as a way of softening ministers on local plant policies. Operation Dixie 
had some initial success in tobacco, pulp and paper, lumber and woodworking factories. Its first major test in textiles came in August 1946. Three CIO-induced union elections were to be held in North Carolina at the Sydney Blumenthal Company in Caramont and at two factories in Rockingham. The P.D. Manufacturing Company and Hannah Pickett Mills, the CIO lost narrowly in Caramont but was defeated by substantial margins at both plants in Rockingham. Meanwhile, police and employer harassment of Operation Dixie organizers was being stepped up across the region. Textile employers and local authorities tapped CIO organizers' telephones, jotted down license plate numbers of vehicles at union gatherings, and started bonfires near to where CIO literature was handed out as a not-so-subtle hint that there was a handy place to discard it. Elsewhere, police found they could intimidate workers by simply standing nearby when organizers set up outside a plant. Operation Dixie, which sputtered to an end in 1953, was a demoralizing loss for labor and one that augured badly for the future. The United Auto Workers, in particular, paid a price for the campaign's failure as foreign car makers such as Nissan, Honda, BMW, Volkswagen, and Mercedes-Benz ultimately took advantage of the region's persistent low wages and anti-union resiliency to open plants that were more cost-effective than the big three manufacturing centers in Michigan, automakers in Tennessee, Alabama, and other southern states could operate at considerable lower expenses by using non-unionized labor and avoiding the ample wage and benefit obligations that burdened Detroit. At this time, the differences over trade unionization that had caused the rupture of the AFL and the breakaway of the CIO in the 1930s had begun to ebb. In November 1952, by coincidence, both William Green of the AFL and Philip Murray of the CIO died, creating a power vacuum that could be filled by men far less tainted by the group's contentious history. Replacing Marie as CIO president was Walter Ruther, who in 1935 had been one of the founders of the United Auto Workers. The new president of the AFL was George Meany, an officer in the New York City Plumbers Union. He was commonly described as a cross between a bulldog and a bull. Eventually, the AFL and CIO decided to merge with Ruther offering to have Meany be the president of the new organization and Ruther, the vice president, now named the AFL-CIO. It was at this very juncture that organized labor began to suffer from its own success. Many large employers had by now embraced the welfare capitalist philosophy that valued workers' retention and a satisfied productive workforce. Most offered competitive pay and benefits regular hours with compensated overtime, paid vacation, sick days, and other perks, along with the majority of workers going from blue-collar to white-collar workers decreased union membership. The creation of the air conditioner and the interstate highway created whole new areas 
of the country for relocation. Also, with people commuting to work, there was a loss of camaraderie among employees who had lived in the shadow of the mill together, nor did they congregate in the union hall anymore. One of the organized labor's least admirable endeavors, the AFL and later the CIO and the combined AFL-CIO, motivated by anti-communists, embarked in the late 1940s on a protracted misadventure of, of covert intervention in the affairs of foreign labor groups, ultimately acting in concert with the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, to undermine left-leaning unions abroad. Given the liberal resentment of conservatives' success at painting U.S. labor as radical, however, there was something disturbing about a policy that saw American labor foster the conservatives' suppression of foreign workers' organizations. In the spring of 1945, just before the Second World War ended, hundreds of trade union representatives from the Allied nations had met in London to discuss ways to coordinate the post-war revitalization of European, British, and Soviet trade unions. At a follow-up convention in October, representatives from 56 nations founded the World Federation of Trade Unions, WFTU. Sidney Hillman, one of the leaders of the American delegation, had been strongly influenced by a speech Vice President Henry Wallace gave in 1942, titled The Century of the Common Man, in which Wallace called for a global New Deal that would raise standards of living in colonial regimes, rebuild infrastructure, and promote free trade. Walter Ruther also thought the effort to cooperate with British and Russian trade unions was a good idea, and shortly after the WFTU's founding, the CIO began lobbying for the WFTU to receive delegate status at the United Nations. The AFL refused to participate in the effort, feeling the WFTU embraced too many unions that were under communist influence. George Meany insisted that real trade unions were impossible under the Soviet system. By the time of the Second World War, the AFL had its own International Affairs Department headed by Jay Lovestone, a former American communist who had been exiled from the party in 1929 and had in turn become rabid in his contempt for the Soviet Union. In 1944, Lovestone led the Free Trade Union Committee, FTUC, a covert program to destabilize leftist labor movement in post-war Europe. FTUC was funded by a grant of $35,000 per year from the AFL, with Matthew Wall of the photo engravers as chairman, Dubinsky as treasurer, and Meany serving as liaison between FTUC and the main AFL leadership. In France, Lovestone's agent was Irving Brown, who had established a beachhead in Paris in November 1945. While Brown covered Europe, FTUC representatives Richard Deverall ran operations first in India and later in Japan. Harry Goldberg organized Indonesia. Willard Etter financed the Free China Labor League from Formosa. All answered to Lovestone. 
Brown crafted a model for AFL involvement in Europe by conspiring against the democratically elected Confederation General Dutrabal, CGT, our AFL-like federation, but Communist-Influenced Workers Federation with 5.4 million members using laundered funds from the United States to stir dissent about communist leaders of CGT, splintering defectors off into a white-collar union. Lovestone published a booklet, The Survey of Forced Labor and Measures for Abolition, which revealed the location of Soviet gulags where slave labor was enforced and reproduced survivors' narrowing accounts. All this actually was to catch President Truman's attention. In 1947, he was persuaded to establish the CIA to replace the Wartime Office of Strategic Services, OSS. Soon after the CIA entered Europe, it began utilizing the infrastructure Brown and Lovestone had set up. In early 1949, CIA funds were funneled to FTUC and soon outstripped all labor donations. It was the FL operatives who had anticipated U.S. policy. What made the CIA AFL intrusion especially hypocritical was that Lovestone's guided actions were in themselves examples of the dark influence of government on trade unions in America. Efforts were designed to halt and, in their obsession with blunting Soviet manipulation, the AFL often wound up in bed with ultra-conservative political actors of dubious character. In the 1950s, a young CIA officer named Paul Sokova began advising higher-ups in Washington of the harm Lovingston's and Brown's efforts were doing. To the very labor unions they were propping up, elections were influenced if not purchased outright. Union dues remained uncollected, organizing activity ceased. Sakwa wrote, what began as an effort to promote and defend democracy evolved into operations designed to sort real incipient or imagined communist threats at the expense of democracy itself. This interference in the labor movement of other nations was not limited to Europe, but included Israel, China, and increasingly Latin America. The American Institute for Free Labor Development, AIFLD, Created in 1962 and led by George Meany and J. Peter Grace, CEO of W.R. Grace & Company, funded by the federal government. The AIFLD fingerprints were later found on a number of U.S. covert incursions into Latin America, including the toppling in 1954 of the labor-supported Guatemalan government of Jacob Arbin, whose land reforms were opposed by the United Fruit Company, the CIA, and the AFL-CIO. with your family and friends. Please rate our podcast on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you want to contact us to suggest a topic, have a question, or just want to say hi, our contact information is in the show notes, along with our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first.